back to Chasing Squirrels podcast. This morning, I'm talking with Jonathan Reed. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Do you, um, I mentioned on the on-ramped, on-ramped, I was going to ask you to throw down your own intro. Are you still cool with throwing something down onto tape? Yeah, sure. My name is Jonathan Reed. My pronouns are he and him, and I, uh, Kind of in one sentence, I'm a boys, uh, a boys program facilitator. I work a lot on boyhood masculinities, uh, both at summer camp and school-based programs. I create a podcast called Breaking the Boy Code, which we might talk about more. Um, and I'm on the National Youth Working Group on Gender Equality. So, uh, yeah, huge, uh, huge passion for working on, on gender with uh, with boys and young men. Is that and is that too in- quick, or is that <laughs> that do the trick? No, <laughs> that was that was perfect. Um, the it's and it was within your intro as well that that I sort of uh, got to know you. I was fortunate enough to come to, I guess, uh, in my mind, I kept on calling it a conference. I called it a one day conference back in March with uh, Next Gen Men, and you were one of the facilitators there. And I can remember at the time it was it was funny. At the time, I'm sitting there like I know this guy from somewhere. I know this guy from somewhere. I'm listening. I'm watching you present. I'm, I'm sort of listening. Where do I know this guy from? And it was funny because it, it just brings to mind, like, I like all the different places that you exist in because, mm-hmm. you know, getting that in real life connection can sometimes be a little bit like it's kaleidoscopic. It, you just don't, you, you have, it, you know, you follow someone, let's say on Insta, or you follow someone on Twitter, or in, in your particular case, your voice I knew from your podcast, but it was disembodied. I didn't have, I didn't have a person to connect with it. And I, at that point I hadn't sort of chased or lurked any feeds to say like, what does this person look like? Like I I just, I didn't, I only (laughs) had the voice. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, this information, it's, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, shifting the language from toxic masculinity to precarious masculinity. And, and I'm, and I'm like, I think I've heard that somewhere before. And it was it was kind of it was kind of mind-blowing. And I think it was only afterwards that Jake, it's uh Sitka? Yeah. Sticka. Stika. How do you say Jake's last name? Sticka. Sticka. So he, you know, I was just taught he said to me, he's like, Oh, you know, somehow that came up about podcasting. He's like, Oh, by the way, Jonathan does a podcast. I'm like, that's the thing. There's the connection. And I think at that time, I think at that time I, I was kind of I wonder, it's not that I'm constantly sussing out, you know, specifics. Like I don't go thinking to myself, I need to talk to a certain type of person on the podcast. Like I don't, I don't think of certain conversations necessarily being missing from my episode list. And I, but I, but I am always sort of thinking, and as like I told you in the on-ramp, what's another conversation that would be cool to have? And when I heard that you were a podcaster, yeah. I almost felt like, oh, he gets it. He'll do this. He'll, he'll go for a conversation. Yeah. So thank you for coming to the podcast. I'm really appreciative that we could sort of dance with this and, and make it happen. And uh, also, you know, jumping in on this on a Sunday morning is, uh, well, I've had just enough coffee to kind of <laughs> get the ideas rolling, right? Okay, so... I don't know exactly where to start, but I I kind of want to start with a a concept that that was raised at the Next Gen Men that I think was still it was a little bit of a gray zone for me, and it was in the Next Gen Men training that we had. We did an activity where we we unpacked, dissected, kind of pulled apart the man box. Yeah, I want to lay against that or lay beside that some of the work that you're doing with Boy Code. So on one hand we have boy code, and on the other hand we have man box, and my brain, because I work in a high school context, I'm watching kind of uh, developmental transitions at the same time that I'm looking at academic, social, cultural transitions, like that the the sort of that step of coming from grade seven and eight into grade nine. And then grade nine into 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12, 12 on. And I was, I, I've become kind of fascinated with the nuances between boy code and man box 
and whether or not that's one operating system as a whole, hmm. or if there's actually some space between the two where we can kind of, you know, there's some, there's like, there's a good spot there to do some interruption. And I'm curious from your perspective, if you see them as, as, as separate, as separate pieces, does one kind of wrap around the other? Is it a, a progressive? Is it a pro, like a progression uh, of, hmm. um, of way of being, way of thinking. So yeah, I don't know. That's the cloud. Can we start with that cloud yeah. on the front end? Yeah, that's super interesting. I'd never really thought about that. What do you think of that? Um, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, so first of all, like the man box is, is, um, is sort of an image or a visual that's often used in programming with boys and men that sort of gets that, okay, inside this box, this is what you're allowed, you know, and then outside the box, that's the stuff that, so inside would be, um, you know, being strong and being tough and being dominant and outside would be like emotion, emotional expression, being uh, weak, you know, um, wearing feminine stuff like, so it's this sort of, you know, uh, dichotomy of what's allowed and what's not for boys and men. The boy code, I'm trying to remember where I originally came across that term. I think it was um, Dan Kinlan and Michael Thompson. I think it was a boy, a book called Raising Cain. Uh, but that's sort of a guess. Like it's sort of in the fog of memory. Um, and, but what I'd say, like, because they're not, first of all, at first glance, they're like, they're definitely not mutually exclusive, you know, and there's a lot of overlap. But for me, what the, perhaps what a, um, you know, what a difference or a, uh, yeah, you know, a contrast between the two or like what differentiates them for me is that I, th- like for me, I guess the boy code feels a little more um, like it refers to the act of policing that line that is the man box. So the man box, like sometimes I don't always get to the point where I'm able to talk about what happens when you're at that line, you know, and you're crossing that line between what's allowed and what's not. And for me, the boy code kind of um, engenders like a, a recognition of what, you know, what actions and behaviors and violence lies at that line of what's allowed and what's not. So there's this code that says, you know, you've got to be tough, you've got to be dominant, and here's what we're going to do if you're not. Um and uh so for example like i'm not going to remember this super well but there's a bell hooks quote where she says like the first act of violence that patriarchy so i'm not even sure if that's the right pronouns for bell hooks but um the first act of patriarchy that um the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence towards others it's violence towards themselves to mutilate or to cut off the parts of you know their emotional expression or their effeminate um parts of their identity and if they don't do it to themselves it will be done to them and i think that for me like the boy code kind of feels like it's touching on it will be done to them like that sort of act of um of policing that happens between boys and maybe you're right that it is a progression from from experiencing that code of of behavior and norms towards you know your own identity being constrained inside this box um, but I have never really thought about that. So I'm also curious if you, <laughs> you know, if you have a thought as well. Well, it, it, you, there was another, there was a, um, a quote that there was the three of you there. So there was yourself. Uh, uh, Jake was there. I didn't write down the third person. What was the third, H- the third uh, coordinator that was there that day? Do you remember? Yeah, Hussein. Uh, Hussein. Okay. Yeah. So, one, so one of you three threw down also... Um, Patriarchy benefits men as a whole, but crushes individuals. Right. And I got, I like that stalled me. That really stalled me because I get the, um, I, when, when I, when I think about, when I think about the, the sort of the, the social tools that have convinced or made me educated me, mentored me into being a man, I would have never necessarily looked at patriarchy as at the same time that it builds me up as part of a whole, that it's also sort of pushing down elements of me. I I didn't have that sense from the inside of being pressurized that way or compartmentalized. Right. I I recently was in a conversation I recently was a conversation with uh, on uh, another guest talking about my sense of feeling like quite free. Like I felt like I can, I can move through spaces and be in spaces and do things and kind of be who I wanted to be without having a similar sense of some of the things that um, 
that he was throwing down, talking about some of the limiters that he felt within the exact same spaces. And mm. we started talking about kind of like the rules of welcoming or being welcomed. And I didn't have a sense of any of the, uh, I, my sense was that it was barrier free or just, I didn't even think to question the barriers. Right. So when I'm, I think one of the things that, are, that kind of sits in this question about uh, boy code to man box comes down to, and I, I could be using, um, <laughs> I could be using maybe Lee, maybe too brutal of a language, but the idea of interrupting the um, interrupting the actual journey between those two things. Cause I, I think in my mind, I I've kept them separately. I've sort of somehow thought like one, one ascends to the other, or you arrive realizing that you're in the box, but you move through the operating system of the boy code, right. you know, it kind of remains a little bit more subtle until you can actually say, Holy crap. Like, yeah, I'm actually, I can see now these barriers. So that idea of patriarchy benefiting, benefiting men at the same time was a bit of a mind blower because what I observe in schools with the young men, the boys, the kids that are coming into high school is this sense of, I observe a sense of ownership and agency that what your, what that training at that session has brought to mind that it might not be as stable as it seems. Yeah, I mean, like boys, in my and maybe like I don't know if this is a, this is a bit of a blanket statement. I don't know if I fully stand by, it, but like I'm thinking, I'm fe- I'm feeling, I'm I'm like I'm reflecting on the fact that boys, in my experience, have been way more articulate about how they are held back through um, norms of masculinity than men um, that I've talked to are. Like I, I don't know, it's and it becomes hard to just differentiate between am I this way because that's me, or am I this way because you know, that's a pattern or a set of expectations that I've, you know, grown up through society. Like, it's really hard to differentiate that kind of thing. Um, but I recently had a conversation with a group of grade seven boys that was like, okay, what do you really like? Like, there's lots of stuff to like about being a boy. What do you love about being a boy? And it was stuff like, you know, physicality in sports and, um, and you know, not having to give birth, for example. Um, and we said, well, okay, and what? And there's lots that we wish we could change maybe. And what are the, some of the things about being a boy that we wish we could change? And like, those were really real. They said, um, well, they said there's a sense of like competition that leads to arguments that we really wish didn't happen. Um, they said, um, there's really high expectations for us, but at the same time, there's really low expectations. <laughs> which was a really interesting conversation. And then a really big one was they said, emotional problems aren't taking that seriously. And, uh, you know, and so having that conversation about like, what, like what norms are we experiencing right now as like as 11 and 12 year olds, um, you can really see where, where they're headed with that. But also like at that age, they're, they're um, given the space and given the opportunity, like they're very interested in questioning those norms. Yeah. I see. I see that. I see that. I work one of the um one of my colleagues that I work with, he's a um he's one of our educational supports at the school. His name's Hani and he's he's a key he's a key facilitator in a group that we have at my school called Boys to Men. And they do a little bit of sports, a little bit of socializing, a little bit of uh, social justice. It's a lot of little pieces coming together. In in some ways, it's it's elements of next gen men manifest f- with with kind of high engagement and accessibility for the high school. And he and I, in some of our talks, you, you know, really struggle with the version that the kids present versus, you know, the version that's just under the surface. Right. Um, and as you said, you know, like the, like the emotional, the emotional fabric of, of boys and also their, their conflicts and not just the ones that we see, let's say the ones that are entirely um, kind of trying to grab power, but the ones that are more about understanding power and agency, like understanding the self, the ones that are just underneath that kind of thin veil of ice. And that's, you know, one of the parts that fascinates me about 
the young these young men coming into high school is what is it that they're looking to belong to right and I'm, i haven't quite figured out a i haven't quite figured out a good way to draw that out but my my second thing then is well what is it that i just don't understand about or what we don't as let's say as educators i can broaden it out it's personally me but if i were to share it like what 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 is it that we're just not really getting about um you know what boys want i think like it's that sense of belonging like um i mean it's crucial but it's crucial for any young person it's crucial for any person any young person and for sure any boy um I was just thinking about. Uh, I, re- I actually had talked about this in a in one of my in one of my podcast episodes. Um, but a really quick story is this researcher Judy Chu, who is uh, researching um, boys, sort of like boys' masculinity, boys' friendships. Um, I think at age like five, six, seven, um, pretty young age. And one of the things that she was noticing was that they would play with sticks, pretending that they were guns. And teachers really hated it. Cause they're like, it's like this, it's like emblematic of like boys violence and like gun violence and, and all kinds of things like that. And she had a more neutral perspective. And then what she said she noticed was that really it wasn't so much about the guns as it was about having a visual signifier that we have something in common and that we have a, a shared experience and that we can belong together. And for her, like what she was saying, and I don't remember, you know, word for word, but just that like that gunplay didn't represent violence as much as it represented you know, a shared sense of like belonging, you know, our friendship. And so, and then, so for me, that's like, okay, so that sticks and imagination at age five, but like what elements of violence uh, remain parts of how boys identify with each other as they become, you know, 12, 13, 15, 16, 14, 15, like as they become teenagers, right? Like uh, to what extent are, are, you know, norms of language, you know, or behavior or, uh, yeah, anything from like fights to misogyny, part of like how they're figuring out, do I belong to this group? Um, and if I act in a particular way, can I get the feeling of friendship and connection that I really deeply desire? Like, are those things connected to violence? Maybe. It brings to mind the whole marshmallow test. Do you know that, the marshmallow test? I was just going to, no, I do not. I don't think. Go for it. So the whole, yeah, well, it's like, I think it's it was probably uh, I don't have the, the 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 proper circa on it, but I'm gonna say let's drop it down into somewhere in this 1960s, maybe 1970s, could have been just before that. And the researchers were doing an experiment on self regulation, and they would present within a controlled environment um, a marshmallow to a, a a kid, and say you can eat this marshmallow right now, but if you can wait. You can wait. You can YouTube this. People are still, parents, teachers are still doing this experiment and posting videos to YouTube. But they say, if you can, if you can, you know, hold off X amount of time, or sometimes the time wasn't even said, then you can have two. So you're welcome to eat this one right now. Go ahead. You can eat it right now, by all means. But if you can hold off for a little bit, I got to go do some work in the other room. I'll come back. And if you haven't consumed, you know, that one marshmallow, then you can have two marshmallows. And then they would go and they would um sort of film you know the the machinations and the the anguish of the child sitting there looking at the at the marshmallow and they had there's a whole lot of uh sort of strategies and uh activities that the kids would go through in order to maintain their composure you know the self-talk and sort of like playing with it rearranging it putting it out of uh, sight turning their back to it calling out for help, you know, is the time up yet? Is the time up yet? So there is in itself, um, the experiment could sort of be, you know, you could kind of paint it out to a bunch of different corners of the room. The heart of the research was looking at self-regulation and where that could potentially lead to adult qualities. So they're projecting this forward. And you know, some people have looked back and said that, okay, you know, in some instances, you know, young children that were not able to exhibit self-control and just shoved the marshmallow in their face right away, or maybe shoved it in there and then blatantly lied about it afterwards. Yeah, I didn't eat it. Someone else must have eaten it. Um, there were some cases where as, as adults, they had challenges with self-regulation, but some of the newer thinking about it 
is also to make a direct a direct line between a child that can't you know help themselves from eating a marshmallow and their success in life um it's not as a direct line there's other factors that um right. impact and kind of pinball that kid in life so i playing with sticks as a early totem or um what's the word um secret identity like it allows you to sort of role play within a, f- a frame that other kids are playing and like you said it belonging connection to the group i get hung on the the sort of the tipping point to where behaviors like that become part of the case management in let's say a threat assessment meeting where we're saying okay so has the child exhibited behaviors that could be you know consider the antecedent to a situation that we're now dealing with, let's say violence in high school to some degree. And I've sat in on those meetings and I think to myself, you know, I get kind of frustrated by the reductive nature of it. We have to get to an answer. We have to sort of figure this thing out. But I also, in the reductive approach, I also think to myself, when are we going to take some time to think of the other sort of like holes in the story that were being filled by other factors? Right. And there. I, I, as a, as an educator, I'm fully aware that I'm only with these students for a part of the day. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. Um, so that sense of belonging and the boys wanting to bring p- parts of themselves to school. I, I, I wish I had a memory I could tap into myself. Like, I wish I could say, yeah, I always wish I could have been this at school. Like, I wish I could have done this thing at school. What are, what are, do you have any observations on that? Like what some of the, the, some of these kids are saying, yeah, I wish I could kind of do this thing at school. If I could bring and be this person at school, um, it could be activity based or just like culture based or something. Are, are these the bits that we're kind of missing out or we just don't get to them mm. within a school mm-hmm. context? What well, do you think? I'm think? I mean, first I'm thinking, um, uh, the one thing that I do want to acknowledge is that, like, I'm not against playing with sticks and pretending that they're guns, you know. And me neither. There are, and, me neither. Yeah, and and there's this perception that when we're talking about, um, like, with a lens of with a critical lens about masculinity and gender, that we're going to slip towards, you know, anti-boy sort of rhetoric. And so that's something I want to point out, and that. Yeah, and I wouldn't suggest that you know that playing with something in one way as a tiny kid is going to necessarily result in something else when you're. Um, when you're a teenager once but on on so it's so it's like it, yeah so i'm trying to say that it's like it's not anti-boy but one thing i do want to point out is that there is something i read recently um about again about really young kids and their um sort of like hegemonic mis- misogynistic language towards each other and towards the girl in their class and they were again like five and six years old and what um the researcher was noticing is that the teachers would um not write off their behavior, but they would say like, they're just little boys and it's a natural part of boys development to be, you know, to be experimenting with this kind of language or to, you know, they're just like, they're innocent kids and it's not, so they would miss that sort of gendered lens and not engage the boys on questioning, you know, those kinds of um, behaviors and ways of talking about each other and about the girls in their class. And the article was saying, um, that it's a bit of a missed opportunity and that if we um, want to like, I guess like improve boys' social outcomes, that it's worth, um, it's worth facilitating their questioning and their exploration of those, of those norms. I don't know if I explained that very well, but it's basically saying like, yeah, let's not assume the worst, but it's less, let's also like not leave things unquestioned, I guess. Um, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it makes me so what I observe then is I, I, I sort of take that and I, I look at um, high school context and, you know, at any given moment, at any given moment, as you move through the halls, you're transitioning between classes. So I'll say as, as the one of the adults in the building, the things that we witness and see as teachers when we move through the halls, they're like there's there's. Besides the classroom that you're getting to where you're you're working with a you know a group of 30, whatever your classroom responsibilities are, and then you have your lesson that you have to get through, the things that you experience as you move through the halls between classes, there's more than one period of time needed 
to sort of mentor through those moments. Right. There's more conversation. There's more dense, rich conversation opportunity in four to five minutes of walking between classes than you can <laughs> ever get to within a classroom. Huh. There's there's a, there's a year there's a year's worth of there's a year I won't say there's a semester's worth of conversations within I would say one day of transitions between teaching your teaching classes and that's just it's mind blowing to me so when I think about one of the greatest challenges of providing mentorship to boys in school one maybe this is what we can lead to next is decontextualizing the moments so that we can play with them in a brave, safe space. So that thing that happens in the hallway can become a reflective practice away from the hallway. Um, the second layer to this that, again, just messes with me, I've been doing a lot of thinking, personal thinking in my practice around what it is I see when I walk the halls, where am I in the hall when I see it? What time is it? Like I'm starting to look at some, some sort of deeper patterning as it just happens to happen in front of me. And in doing so, I'm starting to see a little bit more of my part in either promoting or demoting or dealing with those things. So for example, walking around a certain corner at, a, in a, at the school at some time of the day, what is my mindset as I'm turning that corner? Am I expecting to see something that is just going to, you know, slow me down or I'm going to have to deal with? Am I walking with an open mindset? What's my emotional state? And I've had these conversations with teachers and they're, they're thinking about these things, but we haven't had a really good time to really unpack and say, how does, how does my positioning within these activities either change, increase the likelihood by not being able to address it? How does that help it hurt it? So, Big long ramble, jump on any of what you want in there. At the end, I'd like to talk a little bit about bringing the, I can say hallways, you can think of other spaces, I'm sure. How do we bring those moments in the hallway into a space where we can really kind of honor the conversation, dignify the individual, and and really get into it where you feel like you can get a hold on it. It's not as much having a hold on you. Right. Well, one thing, <clears throat> this kind of goes back to the, like, sort of two things ago, but you did sort of put something in my mind about, like, oh, so what are boys missing? Like, what what do boys want? And that's obviously, like, a super vague question. Um, and it's, like, <laughs> you know, in context dependent. Um, but one thing that I'd say, that like, at least that it made me think of, was that when I do evaluation of the programs that I do with Next Gen Men about, um, and, and what that looks like is about three months of after school um, after school programs that create the safe space and explore these different tenets of masculinity and pieces of masculinity and becoming young men, um, along with, you know, experiential activities and, and then like snacks and free time and that kind of thing. And often what they say their favorite part is, it's like, it's not really the fun. It's like not really the free time. It's not, you know, the playing sports together. It's not even always the experiential activities. Like what comes up again and again is like having somewhere that they could speak honestly and openly with their friends, you know, and deepen their relationships and um, be vulnerable with each other. And um, so it's kind of funny because we set up this program, you know, with different things and, and intentions about how to engage with them and to, you know, and to have that sense of fun and have that sense of, purpose but what they really and, and you know and this isn't everybody but what come, has come up multiple times again and again is that like what really stands out and what really mattered was that they could be together and they could be vulnerable and so when i'm thinking about yeah what you're talking about in terms of like hallway moments and like and and dignifying that time and and that kind of thing is like <laughs> this might not be, I don't know. I'm a relatively young educator, right? But what i'm thinking about is that every adult who works with young people has like has the ability to create something, whether that's an individual one-on-one -on -one relationship or their entire classroom, you know, sense of space and, and community, or whether it's an after-school program or a sports team, every adult who's engaging with young people in any kind of leadership 
you know, facet has the ability to say like, this is going to be a space that, that sets itself apart from, you know, your normative, your norms of, of, uh, you know, of what, like cyberbullying and like, and locker room talk, like we're going to create something together. And, and an adult has tons of, I guess, like potential in making that, like you said, like a brave space of safe space and something that dignifies those young people and the relationships they want. And, um, and it's something that like young people do with each other on a one-on-one basis. They do with each other with like in small groups and friendships and that kind of thing. But it, I think that the, like the possibility of a mentor and the possibility of um, a really intentional, um, you know, guide or, or adult who's, who's putting work in that and offering leadership in that I think has, has the ability to make a, or has the, the capacity or potential to make a huge impact. I love the fact that you threw down that you're a young educator um, I think the choice to spend time mentoring kids in whatever fashion, you know, it kind of falls into a scope of being an educator. There was someone else I was uh, talking to on the podcast here one time and I, and I asked him flat out, I said, you know, you, you strike me as an egg, well, I kind of made a, a statement. I said, you, you, I said, you're a pretty amazing educator. And I, how do you feel about having that, that label? And and it wasn't that he didn't embrace it. It was just he, I, in his words, he hadn't. He doesn't consider himself one. Um, huh. You've declared. You've declared. So you got the label already. <laughs> but I'm curious, right? I'm not. I don't have to sort of offer it to you. I love the fact that you've you've taken it. But I, I am curious. The um, what what brought you? What brought you? to sort of this work. I will say for myself, I wasn't, there was no educator in my future. There was no, like I, I didn't, when I was in high school, there wasn't a, a sense like I wanted to work with kids or that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I, in some ways kind of fell into it and have now sort of developed my, developed my passion while I'm in the environment. I didn't have, it wasn't on the horizon for me. Um, hmm. So for you coming into this work, being in schools, working with, uh, with with kids how did you how did you come to this work working with kids let's say but also with the angle of um the angle of sort of promoting positive masculinity within young men what what what, connect the dots for me um well in terms of becoming um, involved in education i think that sort of just stems from the fact that i was a really excellent student and um school for me was like a place of um, like of achievement, you know, of excellence. Um, and, um, I got a lot from, from classes, from teachers, um, from my own self-directed study. Like I just, school was a place where, um, I guess I did really well, you know? And so even at a young age, I kind of had a feeling like, I really like, I mean, I like working with young people. I also like being here. Um, but I didn't, I, I would not really identify as a teacher. And beca- and that's because I have this particular interest in this particular passion and skill set and working with boys. And where that sort of began is, um, is really as, as myself as a young kid. Um, I have a twin sister um, and uh, and I had long hair. So I had like what were coded as like effeminate interests. I did ballet. I played with Barbies and I, and I wasn't really public about that stuff at school, you know, but it, but along with that, I had long hair. Um, and, um, at a, at a super young age and, and then continuing on for years, I faced tons of gender-based violence. Like I heard the word fag before I knew what a fag even was. I got called a girl. I got told to cut my hair. I got shoved around and be, and, you know, and hurt in different ways. And so even at like, I don't know if that would have been like age 10 that I was really starting to be like, this isn't fair, you know, um, I'm being told to be a specific way. I'm being told to not be myself and, and it's not fair that I get hurt and I get, name called and um and it's just because of some random person's idea of what it means to be a boy that I don't belong to and so at a super at that age was just had the sense of injustice and had an and then as I grew older had a growing interest in okay what are those norms like what are these like what are this like what is gender like what the heck have I, you know how did it result in me getting um hurt in so many different ways um and then as I started researching that that was in a historic like in a bachelor of arts sort of history context at university and then in terms of my degree in education um the more I started to research it and then the more I started to work with boys I was just like this is critical you know that there are um literate um 
experienced, committed, um, sure, we'll say educators engaging with boys and, and sort of helping boys reflect and expanding those notions that constrained me so, um, I'll say violently when I was a kid. Um, so that, it was just like a growing thing that like, this is so important. And then it's been like a self-fulfilling thing where I commit myself to it and I learn so much and I grow so much and then I, I head back in and I do more. So it's just like a growing thing at this point in my life. Um, and yeah, it's funny. Like I identify definitely as a young educator, but I have a real sense that I found my life's purpose, which is kind of wild, you know, at age 24 to be like, this is it. You know, this is what I'm going to be doing. And this is where I think I belong. So that's a little bit about me, uh, but it's definitely started with trauma and kind of ended with purpose. And then the sort of the driver that brought you into podcasting, was that just a, a natural kind of transition? Was it, was it brought to your attention? Did you kind of seek it out? How did the, what tripped that space to go from, you know, this sort of growing sense of, I need to be an advocate. Okay. I, I, I want to speak to this. I'm cool with who I know I have to speak to. And then there's opportunities. So in some ways you, you could be a teacher. I mean, you could, you, there's other sort of yeah. venues. You could be working in, you know, boys, girls club. You could have, you could be sort of going into social work or other sort of therapeutic kind of work. How did the option of podcasting pop up? And was it something that you, you went at right away? Did you like, yeah, I'm going to totally do that. What were your thoughts around when the idea kind of started percolating? The idea started percolating or percolating when I was um, a couple of years ago, I bicycled across the country doing a multimedia journalism project that was 15,000 kilometers on a bicycle um, for Canada's 150th anniversary. And <laughs> so I started listening. I'd never listened to podcasts before, but that was where I started because you can't listen to that much music uh, while bicycling. That's awesome. So I started That's to, actually totally to makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started to delve into podcasts and was like, this is a really cool medium. You know, there's really interesting people having interesting conversations. Uh, but I went looking for stuff about masculinity and found a really limited um set of options. Not that they were low quality options, but just that there wasn't many people talking about it. And there was nobody really talking specifically about boys um, or engaging or uplifting boys' voices. And so it was just this empty space that I was like, I think this is really important that if we're talking about masculinity, we engage the young people who um, really are going to be, you know, either challenging or perpetuating the culture that they've been given. I think it's really important that we start talking about how are we raising our young people, educating our young people, and then to have the opportunity to like actually listen to, uh, you know, a young teenager. Like I feel like that's just kind of mind blowing. Um, and the first time that like, I, um, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. There's some sort of, you know, revisionist history, like podcast, I think it's called revisionist history or something like that. And he was talking about the education system, maybe in California. And he actually did have, I think a 13 or a 14 year old talking. And I was like, not transfixed, but I was like, that's so interesting to hear an actual young person talking about what they're experiencing and what they believe. And, and that, so that was like a bit of a, a catalyst as well. Um, and then in terms of like, why not? Like, I don't know for me, like, I've done a lot of reading um, on gender. I'm considering doing um, graduate studies. And so I think I have this, now I'm like tooting my own horn, but I have this, like I have a confluence of like on the ground experience as well as like academic, um, more, I don't know if you'd call it like intellectual understandings of gender. So I think that's a really valuable thing to bring together. And um, the hope with the podcast is that people can A, learn from boys themselves, like just hear boys' voices and be transformed by them, uh, but also get a taste of some of the, like the research and, you know, the connections that um, I'm able to make because of, of where I've gone with the masculinity stuff. Toot, toot, go ahead. <laughs> that, was, that totally made, yeah. <laughs> to, totally, totally made sense. No, it's funny because um, I feel a parallel, a very small parallel. I haven't done the cross Canada thing, but that experiencing a medium and having it kind of actually I'll back up a second me having questions just in general around education um is is sort of it's similar in some ways to you having the sense of inquiry around elements of boyhood like there's these questions that I just feel either the market or the media are not I can't find it I'm going to keep looking but I feel like it's kind of missing. So w then we lead into voice. 
high school perspective, we just call it student voice. I mean, anywhere else you would just say, you know, the voice of, <laughs> just include the voices of the the individuals that you're, don't change them, let them change things with their voice. And that was one of the things I, I, I really appreciated with, I still appreciate now with your podcast is including the, um, the kids' voices in there, them, them speaking to their, their experiences. And that, that it raises, it raises the, um, not only engagement, but I think it raises, there's an element of intentionality around there is that we're going to spend time in the emotional state of these boys. Right. Because we're not talking about it. We're letting them speak to it. And it completely changes the, the tone. And also I think how we feel about podcasts because if you can hear, I mean, it's, it's great to hear stories. And there's going to be people listening to our conversation like, yeah, I understand those stories. I liked their personal stories. The next thing you can draw in some of that primary voice, though, of the who the stories are about, not just the two guests, it's riveting. And if you had 1,500 kilometers to be riveted, I can only imagine some of the close calls you might have had on the bike where you kind of get you know, preoccupied or fascinated by one of those ideas. Cause that is one of the risks of me listening to a podcast when I'm driving. Like I have to almost <laughs> turn it off every once in a while, just so I'm keeping an eye on the road. Right. So when you're, when you're, you're out on the bike and you're starting to sort of formulate some of these, these questions about, or not questions or just maybe intentions around what you're going to do, you know, how you're going to kind of get, get into these conversations. Did you have any, I shall do this two things. What was the stuff that you thought, like just the really cool, positive upside stuff that you thought, I want to kind of fill, I want to fill part of my conversations with this. I want people to know, or at least to be able to hear like some of the coolness of being a boy. Was there anything on that list that you thought this is just not what's being talked about? Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it fits quite the describer of coolness, but definitely like a bit of emotional, um, vulnerability like often what boys are talking about on my podcast is stuff that you would not normally connect with boys experience you know like i had i think it was my second episode was this boy talking about losing his best friend and it's like when you think about like when the average person thinks about boys friendships like what do they think about like Fortnite, you know or lego <laughs> and not heartbreak so that sort of sense of emotional um depth was something that i really wanted um the showcase is not the right word, but I really wanted to acknowledge and demonstrate and allow boys to acknowledge and demonstrate themselves. Um, I know because of my relationships with boys and the work that I've done that that boys do have incredible emotional capacity and depth, but it's not something that's necessarily always part of mainstream perceptions about boys. Um, so I think that's that's part of um, the, that was part of the vision and the imagination of like what would it what would it mean like to allow boys to talk about their own lives and that with that kind of um you know depth and authenticity what about some of the thought traps so the spaces that you thought were already you know it's kind of being covered but you thought you know what i gotta i gotta come at this one differently like i need to kind of open up some light on this a little bit were there any of those topics or approaches that um yeah, I just I just call them thought traps where you just you know the conversation just goes goes there way too quickly and we just okay, we can land there, but we're going to bounce off that pretty quick. Yeah, back then that was 2017 and back then toxic masculinity was not as talked about in the media as it is today. Um so at this point today I would I would definitely say that toxic masculinity is a bit of a thought trap and just in the way that it it sort of polarizes people and doesn't, you know, engage in super thoughtful or reflective discussion. Back then one and it's not like it was that far, it was two years ago, right? But back then something that I um that I guess like I consciously wanted to um challenge um was that people were always talking about men a little bit. And um so I, before, long before I even really knew what the podcast would be called or what um, exactly it would look like, I did have that idea of what I would say in that introduction episode where I think it's like the very first thing I say in the entire podcast is like, how do you stop a guy? Like, how do you stop a, stop a man from enacting violence? And then and I, I think I might have borrowed this format from somebody else, but I said, well, I basically talk to him when he's a boy, you know, and 
I kind of, I kind of just distracted myself by like remembering <laughs> what that was like. But basically, this narrative of like, how do you, how do you, <laughs> yeah, exactly, you're thinking about writing how a do you stop right violence <laughs> at an adult level? Like, talk to kids, and I think that's not, you know, I would never claim that to be my own original thought. There's people that have suggested that for hundreds of years, um, but the way that people were talking about, um, you know, anything from sexual violence to gun violence to, um, I don't know, like parenting that they're often talking about knit men and not talking about kids uh, and not talking about boys um, becoming young men. So that was a thought trap that I was like, it's really important, you know, that we talk about boys and we talk with boys. That's a good one because it even, <laughs> you've got me thinking. So even our, the school that I'm at, the club is called boys to men. And I'm not about to go back and talk to my buddy and say, Hey, have you considered rebranding this? Just so we, you know, let's, let's, kind of let's stay with them do we do we have to sort of necessarily build that next level as much can we just stay where they are we're, we're, we're with the boys it's the you know building the boys that's that's interesting and that's the truth I would I would I'm gonna agree with you it's a truth I'm not um I can't argue that at all I want to go back to your the toxic masculinity and the the language change up because in that session that I was with with you folks, there was the suggestion, the intention to move from toxic masculinity to uh, precarious masculinity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I brought that back to a couple people, and it, it it didn't it didn't stick with them. They they wanted to hang on to the other, and I thought, I well, it, I won't say in a in a expressive way, but it didn't, it it just didn't capture. I guess what their perception was in a way that toxic masculinity does. Huh. Um, and without even, we didn't have a lot of time to un unpack what their strands, what they were feeding into toxic masculinity. I think it was just because it's it, the way that it's branded in media and it could be even, I think it's been jargonized by some of our professional development. I had not come across precariousness in relation to masculinity in any of my school PD. Right. So I'm curious about your experience in sort of moving the language into that space and what new what new thinking has maybe kind of come out of it by being able to speak to it in that way as opposed to its toxicity. Yeah, so like I kind of mentioned like what what kind of sucks about the term toxic masculinity is that it has a really polarizing response. Some people um are really for it, and some people find that it kind of demonizes or vilifies boys and men and you end up with backlash like not all boys are like that not all men are like that and um there's this sort of I, you know and there's different understandings basically i'm kind of rambling but basically everybody has an opinion on it and some of those opinions are really strong and don't lead to really thoughtful understandings or discussions about yeah about boys or young men and what i like about precarious masculinity which is basically I mean, the terms kind of suggest that it's it, it basically what it's getting at is that masculinity um, or masculine status is not a given. And often in, in comparison to femininity and your identity as a woman, that that's just something that you. I can't speak about girls as effectively as I can about boys. So I'll go back to boys and say that like, but you have to prove yourself, right? You have to prove that you're man enough. You have to prove that you're tough enough, you know, and that you can handle enough and that you can dominate in different ways. And so that there's this really sense that as a boy, as a young man, you've got to prove that and your masculinity can constantly be called into question. You have to be ready to prove it again and again and again. And what I like about precarious masculinity is that it allows for that proof to be positive or harmful it's not assuming toxicity um and it doesn't even in the length like in the its own term it doesn't um necessarily um engender negativity towards masculinity basically it's saying that there's a precariousness and you've got to prove yourself but you could prove that you're a man um by taking care of your little brother maybe you could prove that you're a man um you know or, or that you're masculine by um really excelling at a sport, you know, or some sort of athletic, you know, thing. <laughs> um, but you might also prove it by um, groping a girl, you know, mm -hmm. and you might also prove it by calling that kid homophobic slurs. And so there's, there's a choice there and there's agency there. And so, um, you know, I maybe, so maybe 
you know, in the next couple of decades, we don't get to the point where, you know, that masculinity is still precarious, but we can shift the balance between um, how I prove myself as a man being um, from really harmful things that we're seeing, you know, with um, one in three women in Canada experiencing sexual violence and one in six men also experiencing sexual violence with 99% of the perpetrators being men. Like we can shift that balance towards, okay, let's prove ourselves by making choices that positively, you know, impact ourselves, that positively impact the people around us and the communities that we're part of. So that's what I like about precarious masculinity is that it doesn't, um, it refers to, I guess what I like about it is that it refers to all boys' experiences of masculinity rather than just trying to single out, you know, toxicity within an entire gender that leads to this backlash and leads to, you know, confusion and different understandings of what that really looks like. That was kind of, I don't know if that was long, <laughs> it was sort of like a winding explanation, but um, I think it's a great term. I just, it's, I mean, it's hard to figure out jargon and when to use what and what people are going to resonate with, so... Uh, yeah, but those are some thoughts. No, I think they're. I think part of the part of the motion towards moving, kind of like moving between terms, is that it's not as simple as we're just not going to use this this new term. You know, there's 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 a there's a brand new lens to deal with, right? And um, I think that there's a automatic tendency to believe that it becomes zero sum, that there's no, to sort of suggest that we can move, change the term. It's not that we're forgetting what the elements of toxic, toxic masculinity are. We're still working through that. But the 2.0 of this is for those of, okay, so if we effectively help a child deal with their toxic masculinity, then what? So the kid, this is in again what I'm thinking about. Okay, so let, if we're if we're saying that we've stopped the kid from consuming, using, expressing whatever toxic elements of their masculinity that that are perceived. So then what? Now we have an opportunity. The child has an opportunity. It strikes me like we need to have language that sort of picks them up from that space and says, "Here's now what we're going to help you to understand." Um, I haven't come across your explanation is on point because I think it speaks to the necessary um, grind or work that has to happen in moving between those two terms. Cause I do believe that there are adults that want to hold on to that, the toxic term for, for uh, I'm going to say for probably negative reasons, like they're just, cause we need to have accountability. We need to sort of, there has to be sort of law enforcement and there has to be punitive measures that keep that stuff capped. But what about the restorative approach, which some of the spaces that I've taught in, um, I've always been a little bit outside regular classrooms. So I've guided special education. I've worked in suspension and expulsion uh, program. So I've always been in a space where, despite the fact that someone may say, cool, you're working with those kids. And those kids are kind of been kind of, let's say, pushed to, to slightly outside of regular programming. I ask myself, well, what's restorative about being here? So once we're actually, we do the work of sort of getting to a space where the kid can sort of be, access a different huh. version of themselves, then what? So that's why I, I loved I loved the switch in the term because it struck me as this is how you think. Yeah. At, this is next level thinking. So it didn't, on one hand, I, I heard your, I heard your, your sort of like, oh, like your response <laughs> to me saying that the teachers had a hard time embracing it. I think, I, but no, I think there's part of it is, um, I think there's reason for it. There's, there's big reason for it. And it was, you know, if I, when I go away and I come back and I have conversations and I, like I come back and I share part of it is there could be, there could be a whole weekend of learning that I've gone through yeah. and I can't express that in a, you know, over coffee as I'm standing there. So I'll just kind of give some of the information. So there's still work for me to do to bring this language into common jargon and let's sort of like, let's really work through it, what it means within a high school context. But initially, in, in in the three conversations I had about it just after the event, there was some um, some short sightedness there. People couldn't see how to get from one to the other, and um, so that's my, I guess my work in my context. But I really appreciate your explanation makes sense because that is part of the grind in the movement between two terms. One term right now that is complete a complete flag in the ground, media saturated, mm -hmm. and not really lo mm -hmm. losing steam. I think the connection, 
toxic masculinity. Yeah, the connection to restorative justice, I think, is really apt. That had not occurred to me that, like, perhaps part of the value of a term like precarious masculinity is that it leaves op- it leaves you know, open the possibility of restorative justice and toxic masculinity kind of doesn't kind of like the response, like, how do you, I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of just speaking hype, but like, I don't really know what I'm talking about at this point, but like, <laughs> maybe, okay, anyways, um, but toxic, like, what's the, like, what is the response to toxic masculinity? Kind of like you said, like punishment, you know, and, and containing that, but precarious masculinity means that you can recognize the culture that boys live within and walk into that with your eyes wide open um, and help boys walk into that with their eyes open, um, knowing what's around them but also knowing how they can make choices that like i said that positively impact themselves and other people so i think the connection to restorative justice is really cool and that hadn't occurred to me cool happy to share man happy to share yeah and i've like read about i got one more for you okay go no go ahead for it no no you drop in you drop in (laughs) i was just gonna say really quickly i read an article that or I, i don't remember where this was um that um, I wish I could remember. I need to go back and... Oh, no, you know what? It was a chapter of a book that I do have an intention to reread um, that was Raising Emotionally Healthy... I'm looking up on my bookshelf. Raising Emotionally Healthy Boys by Michael Reist. And, um, and one of his chapters is about restorative justice within... Um, I think like within sexual violence and, but talking, I don't know, I see, I need to reread it, but it was about the, the it was about the huge potential restorative justice has for for changing... Um, I don't know. I don't know what the to change the game, to change the playing field, to change everything. You know, in terms of not. See, I'm, I'm just getting repetitive, but in terms of changing our ju- our justice system. If I put it to my high the high school experience, it is that it is that five minute. If if toxic masculinity is the five minute noticing of what is not right, like I said, we need the longer discussion. So if if. If restorative justice, one of the elements of it, and I've been involved with peer mediation and restorative uh, conversations in high schools, one of the biggest challenges with it is is time. That the big clock that says, here's the beginning of the day and here's the end of the day, and here's the beginning of the semester and the end of the semester, the beginning of the year and the end of the year, and all this stuff has to happen within this one school year. That sets a whole lot of, that that that's a simulcast to a whole bunch of other timers, including that little five to seven minute transition time between classes. As in, I just left here, I have to be there. And anything that happens in between, we need these quick kind of tools to be able to deal with. Now, you might be able to throw water on it to kind of put out the fire. But if you're not paying attention to what else is kind of like impacting and kind of sparking up around it, like you, nothing really is, nothing is helped in that moment. It stopped or paused, but nothing is help, helped. So I think that might be, that's the next space, right? That, that, that's, that's the big challenge, at least from the high school is, huh. and we talked about it, you know, the brave spaces and the belonging. So getting, getting a, a, a group of individuals together that are willing to kind of, individual singles, you mentioned as well, you can make that one connection, that's cool too. But getting into the kind of day, the opportunity to move from these completely unmediated highly social and developmentally, let's say, challenging challenges in the hallways into a space where some of that noise is pulled away and we can bring it back to what is it that you're thinking now about this? What were you thinking when it was going on? How do you feel about this? How might you feel in the future? How did you feel even before this thing happened? So that's, I think that's always been the the restorative challenge and having any of the individuals involved in the relationship or whatever just happened being dignified enough to be able to speak. Yeah. One quick thing about that is again, a different book that I've read looking at uh, cracking the boy code (laughs) by Adam Cox, where he, um, one of the things that he says is that boys have um, sometimes have, what was the term? Idiosyncratic behavior. And I actually, now that I say it out loud, I'm not 100%. Maybe you can tell me exactly what that word. Anyway, so um, idiosyncratic behavior that they might do something wrong, but for really good reasons. And those reasons might be related to their emotional vulnerability. So he's talking about engaging boys who have made a mistake, um, but kind of like you said, um, with, um, you know, like dignity or um, uh, awareness, you know, of, of what emotions might be going on in that, in that context. 
It's a truth. It's a total truth. Here's my um, here's my next question for you. Here, it's kind of, let's say this is the wrap up question. You cool with a wrap up question? Sure, totally. Oh, all right. Um, and it kind of kind of goes from the next. It, it, that's the point of view. The next. So, um, what's coming down the pipe? What are you working on? Um, what are you kind of excited about as you you know move into the summer? What are some of the, and I mean, speak from the personal, speak from the professional. What, um, what's the next thing for Jonathan? Well, I'm literally going to turn off the microphone with you and then go and finish my own podcast episode, which is long overdue. Um, but I'm super excited. I just did a really, um, sort of incredibly vulnerable, um, conversation with, um, an adult who is sort of, anyway, it's, I mean, you'll have to wait to see, but I have this really, um, incredible intersectional episode coming that's about sexuality and about culture um, that uh, I learned a lot from. And, um, but I've been, um, as you can probably empathize with, like I've just been so busy, you know, trying to create a podcast on the side is not easy. So I've been putting it off just because um, have felt a little, um, I, I don't know if intimidated by it or overwhelmed by it, but I'm, I'm going to turn this off with you and then go, um, open up my own software and, and get cracking on it. And that'll, <laughs> cause I'm headed to summer camp tomorrow, um, which is a very engrossing um, full-time job. So I'm hoping to finish it tonight. So that's, that's on the very, very, you know, rapidly approaching horizon. I'm going to go crush that, um, do some more recording and editing. Um, and then I'm going to call the end. That'll be the end of season one. Um, so in the fall, I'm intending to come back to podcasting and I'm intending to do it um, with a little more, maybe with a little more rigor and a little more, uh, you know, timeliness in terms of scheduling it and having it more cleanly laid out for myself. Um, it's all a learning process, um, and a practicing process. So, um, but just doing my best in that respect. So I'm looking forward to finishing this episode for, and, and I'm looking forward to setting things into motion for the next season. And in between have, um, this is my sixth year at this summer camp, my third year being the head counselor for the 10 to 15 year old boys. And it's a place that I have a huge sense of belonging, huge sense of connection. Um, and also a lot of, um, um, I guess like the privilege of a lot of responsibility to be um, coordinating and facilitating a lot of masculinity stuff that, that has a huge impact on um, the young men who are also helping make me lead it. And also, you know, the boys and teenagers that are, that are part of it as well. So a really cool um, day and a really cool few months ahead of me. <laughs> and um, it's just like, it's just where I'm at in my life, you know, just like huge passion, ability and opportunity. Um, so if I sound really excited, it's because I am. Rightfully so. That's, that was, that would, I, I look forward to your, whatever comes out for your second season. And I definitely, you've, you've got me, uh, you've got me intrigued with this next episode, the teaser that you threw down. Where do you want to be? <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Like he, you, it was a good teaser and the stuff coming down the rigor part I'll, I'll say flat out side hustles are difficult it is it is difficult to kind of you know yeah. track passion and professionalism at the same time you know if you can put them both together i don't know if it becomes any easier but if it's a side hustle it's uh it's it's it takes some pretty strong intention to sort of bring it back to the table and as far as the let's say your episode that you're putting together, if any part of that um, last episode of season one, any part of this episode you're talking about, if any of the pause is because of the kind of the nature of the content or the conversation that happened, or just maybe the intensity of it, I've been there and I, and I get that. I've had conversations where I just, I'm like, Oh, Hmm. Okay. When I release this or when I release this, you know, you know, what will, what will the conversations be? How will I feel? Like I just, it's almost like I, it's almost like going back to my first episode and my finger hovering over the publish button and like, what am I about to do? What am I about to do right now? Where would you like to be found? Someone wants to reach out, connect with you, continue the conversation, check out some of your posts and content. Where could they go? Uh, we'll say breaking the boy code. So if you Google breaking the boy code, breaking the boy code.com or at boy podcast on uh, social media, um, you can connect with me. I am really active on Twitter. Um, and love, like, I just like 
I'm also at a point in my life where I like cannot get enough of people um, engaging, um, sharing, you know, their stories, sharing their engagement with boys. Like, I think it's really critical that, um, that this sort of inchoate group of people that are passionate about boys and also passionate about gender equity that we, that we communicate with each other and support each other um, and support the boys and that we're working with. I don't know if that really made sense, but basically like, so at boy podcast on social media and let's get connected. I think it's really important that we, that we do. <laughs> yeah. No, that totally makes sense. That totally, that totally makes sense. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for spending some time with me. Um, have a blast at camp. Like, Seriously, have a blast at camp. Uh, and I look forward to whenever you and I can connect again. Seriously, whether it's digital yeah. or at another session, another training session with NGM, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that, man. Yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, I'm sure you're going to go off and spend some time with your kids today. So all the best. Send some love. Oh, dude, I, I can hear, I can, yeah, thanks, man. I can hear them smashing around upstairs. So that's, that's the whole thing. It's the interesting thing about, you know, if, if it got, if the mic got a little hot, it's because I'm leaning in. I'm like, oh, they totally hear the, the bass from upstairs, just my kids running through the, <laughs> the, the kitchen or something. So yeah, yeah, it's family stuff today. So I appreciate that. Okay. Well, all the best then. Thanks again for your time. It's been awesome. I've learned stuff. I've realized stuff. So it's just wicked to be part of these kinds of conversations. So thank you. Agreed. Cheers, man.